By dreaming of a high flight, one becomes unfit and sinks very low. For it is true that humility and sanctity of life are more significant for the inner fitness of a pastor than our talent and scholarship. Welcome everyone to A Word Fitly Spoken. Willie Grills, Owen Heidi, and joining us today, the Reverend Adam Kuntz to, to begin our discussion about Wilhelm Leia's The Pastor. Gentlemen, how are you? Very good. Thank you. Mild, I like it. Gentlemen, how is the weather in your area? Cold, I guess I would say. And probably compared to Adam, probably bitterly cold. I think it warmed up to a total of about seven below today. The wind has been blowing pretty hard. I know last night we were, I think, with a wind chill of about 40 below. So it's been entertaining, to say the least. What about you? Uh, yeah, um, it snowed today. It, was, it wasn't... It wasn't that cold. I think it's going to get really cold maybe tomorrow night or something, but getting getting anywhere below zero is nearly unprecedented around here. So I'm sure people will believe that the world has ended and hell has frozen over, but um, we'll, we'll make it through. And I think it, it goes, I think that only happens for a day and then we're back up to like 35 or 40 or something. So hmm. here it's pretty frigid, but with just, just one day of really awful wind chills. The wind, some of you can probably hear in my microphone as we record some of these episodes, but it's not too bad. Just one day of it. It's not the uh, live reenactment of the thing that Zelwyn's going through up there. (laughs) So that's pretty good. Complete with Norwegians. Right. You know, they all tell me that Chicago is colder than Antarctica, and I'm really really trying to care about that city a couple hours north of me. So <laughs> is what it is. And we're getting letters now. So <laughs> But I you know I do I do wish nothing but safety for the people, you know, in legislature. Anyway, we are here tonight or today or whenever you're listening to it to begin our discussion of Wilhelm Leia's The Pastor. Now we discussed CFW Walther's pastoral theology before some of his personal advice and exegesis, and that was a fun discussion. The listeners seemed to like it. But now we move on to a rather different character, but one that is no less influential for American Lutheranism, and not just American Lutheranism, but Lutheranism throughout the world, and that is Pastor Leia. So Adam, can you briefly tell us who Leia was? Yeah, Leia is born during the Napoleonic Wars in 1808 in southern Germany from a, a bourgeois family in the city of Fürth. It's a good word. Yeah, it, it is significant for tonight's discussion that he comes from a city. He comes from a well-to-do family. He received a very good education, and he goes to university intending to become a theologian. He's generally very academically successful. But one of the great problems that he has in life is that he is a believing Christian in a time in which the state church, many of the state churches throughout Germany, are thoroughly rationalistic. So he has that very much in common with C.F.W. Walther, although Walther is from a a different province and a different state church. And Germany was not a unified country when they were growing up. So practically speaking, they weren't citizens of the same nation. Leia is almost too successful in the various positions he holds 
before he takes up his pastorate at a little isolated village called Neuendettelsau. He's too successful in that he shows people up. He shows up what would, in an American context, be vicarage supervisors and senior pastors. And he's kind of punished because generally a man of his gifts and background would be assigned to a very large, wealthy urban parish. He gets sent to kind of the back of beyond. And it's understood by him at first and certainly by the people who sent him there as a, a punishment and a defeat. It's in that place in Neuendettelsau that he ministers for the entirety of his life and does a lot of things. I mean, we can go into them, but they have world worldwide impact. Yeah, it's interesting that, that he ends up having this great impact through his sending of missionaries and such without ever actually leaving his area, his immediate region. Yeah, he doesn't, but he's able to raise funds. He founds a school in Neuendettelsau to train mission workers who generally become pastors when they reach the field, such that there are descendants of Leia, spiritual descendants of Leia in America, Canada, Brazil, Australia, Papua New Guinea, you name it, he has an impact there in the 19th century. And in heaven, the celestial kingdom. (laughs) (laughs) And he is actually instrumental in the early Missouri Synod. He's the motivating force behind what was then and the once and future Fort Wayne Seminary our collective alma mater. And the Missouri Synod, he helps them along in the beginning, although he is really the the direct father of what is later known as the Iowa Synod, which I, I think you guys probably know more about the Iowa Synod than I do. But he's got he's got a hand in a lot of different things, basically because of a tremendous amount of energy and talent, all of it exercised from this one little Franconian village. Well, it's interesting that you mention all this, Adam, because that really will help put some of his what he's saying in this book into a, a greater perspective, because it's it's a book written from experience. It's not just a theoretical kind of yeah, thing. Right. Right. So what is this book then that we're that we're discussing? It's called The Pastor, but you have a tr- you have a little bit of a translation issue, I think, in understanding what Leia is getting at, because the German is like I'm trying to think of an English way to say it. Like it's the the evangelical or the Lutheran spiritual man, somewhat in the same way that Catholics call monastics religious sometimes. So it's the evangelische Geistliche. And so it's 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 not so much about there are instructional sections which we'll cover later in the season on how to preach a sermon well, how to visit the sick well, how to bury the dead, similar to Walther's pastoral theology. But this book especially the first half of it, is much more about what kind of a man a pastor should be, how he ought to be, how he should carry himself. There's even a long chapter on what his wife should be like. Is it analogous at all to say Tyndall's obedience of a Christian man then, and things that we see early Reformation guys writing about how one ought to be or regard oneself? Yeah, yeah. I mean, limited specifically to the clergy in a, if if the if the listeners want to go back and listen to our episodes on Gerberding's the Lutheran pastor it's more similar to Gerberding although has an even greater stress and i think in in some ways psychological insight about a greater expanse of being a pastor even than Gerberding does so it's it's much more about the man 
than it is about the office. Whereas like when you read Walther, there are sections about the pastor as a man, but most of it is like, this is how you do this. This is why you do that. It's much more like a, like a manual. Whereas Leia has a lot of food for thought, which is densely packed. And that comes through even in translation. All right, then. Well, I guess we're just going to pick up right in the first part of the book then. So how does Leia open his discussion of the pastor? He doesn't seem to be a kind of person that likes to nurse other people's illusions. When he starts out, he's theoretically addressing the the theological student, we would say in an American context, the seminarian. And he's saying that whereas you have been studying a wide range of things in college and and even in your theological training, you've been studying this systematician and 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 that biblical book and you the synoptic problem and the medieval church and everything, as a parish pastor, your horizons will necessarily have to narrow. Well, let me ask you this before we dig into the material then. So if he's addressing what we would call a seminarian, in his context, a theological student, is there any appreciable difference between, say, one of our seminarians and the theological student that Lay is addressing? Our seminarians probably come to seminary more in a vocational setting than a theological student in 19th century Germany for two main reasons. One of those is the setting of theology in Germany within a university rather than it's in its own separate institution. There are seminaries in 19th century Germany, but they're kind of like finishing schools for specific practical subjects. It's not the same thing as the comprehensive theological education at an American seminary. That's a big difference. The other big difference is that these guys in 19th century Germany are all classically trained such that they they receive an education prior to studying theology. You know, I mean, honestly, if you're talking about quality, probably more similar to somebody that has a master's degree in classics today, even than someone who majored in it, let alone has never studied the ancient world before. Yeah, yeah. Basically, we're looking for a today or in those days, they're looking for this traditional classical education. There's a fluency and a proficiency in language, or at least a proficiency in languages. There's familiarity with the Western canon, as where today it's basically we look for a four-year degree. So sports medicine to seminary to full-time theological education is a transitional possibility. <laughs> or whatever. No, no offense to any sports medicine guys. First thing that popped up, it could be pre-med if you want. It could be pre-sem. Let's not get upset. There's a deep and historic track that these that these men historically followed, and we and we see that actually in early American theological education too. To be fair, yeah, this this seems to be pretty similar to. I mean, correct me on this if I'm wrong, Adam, but in like the 16th and the 17th centuries, as theological education is professionalizing and is becoming, you know, departments of you know, founding universities you get this growing sense of a distance between pastors and laity where pastors will basically get up and give sermons that are full of Latin and Greek and, and, and basically preaching sermons that would do well in a university setting, but don't really translate well to a parish. Is that a similar problem that Leia is, is facing? 
One, that is a perennial problem in that Chrysostom addresses the same thing in On the Priesthood, that the man who has been exercising his mind in the philosophers now has to field the complaints of old women who are berating him. So there, this is a, the, 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 the gap between what you thought it was going to be and what it turned out to be as far as what you're doing with your time, I think has always been there. The other issue is that Leah is talking about basically training your attitudes now so that you understand what it is that you're actually training for, because what you're training for, he says, he says, the vast majority of you will not take up the lectern of your professor, but you will take up a country pulpit. Now, that's important, though. That, that is tuning your attitudes rather than tempering expectations. Right. 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 And yeah. so that's an important distinction. It's not simply setting, getting used to the fact you might be disappointed. It's actually tuning yourselves for the work that is going to be set before you. Right. And so he wants, he wants your, your horizons, once you are done being a student, to be already prepared to have the intensive nature of the parish, but also the, the literally parochial nature of the parish, its smallness, its constancy, sometimes its claustrophobia. He wants, he wants the student to already think of those things as he's getting ready to do all the study. I think this is a great quote to that point. It's on page nine, if anyone has a copy of this book. But often the transition, that is the transition from these high expectations to the, the realities of the parish, is so difficult, and many a man remains so caught in the ropes of his university years that he will never be able to adjust to a serious professional life. Some have to pay so dearly for their little bit of pseudo-knowledge that they enter the pastoral <laughs> office completely useless. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's just that those kinds of gems that pop up all the time. But I think he really has a point here is that if, I mean, maybe this is a question we can ask ourselves on a more practical level for our kind of education. If we are training our pastors to be academics first, what does that say about how approaching the pastoral office in our own context? Yeah, I, th- I think that that has to do as a, as a problem for us, I think that often has to do with how the different theological disciplines relate to one another and understanding that what is grasped in a Bible class or a dogmatics class or whatever always has to flow into practice, that none of it is meant to just sit out there just and, and, and that you are not a kind of tenured research professor in the parish who simply has to produce Bible studies. So I think, I think that that is, that is partly an understanding of how, of, of how practice relates to the other areas of the Christian life. I think for the pastor, it's an issue of sanctification in the same way that it is for any Christian, where there are many Christians who know a great deal about their congregation's history or the controversies over money that have occurred in the congregation or they've done a bunch of Bible studies, or whatever knowledge it is that they have that could be of use to the church. Many, many, many Christians have a lot of trouble putting that into practice. And one of the things that I think is so helpful about Leah, both for pastors, and if you're listening to this and you're not a pastor, you should still get the book, is because he, I think he can speak with a particular clarity and pungency about what is actually needful, not only as far as what I should do, 
but how I should think about, how I should feel about, how I should present what I do. And it's those kind of discussions of the interior life that I think are so valuable, especially about this first chapter. Who do you think should read this book? Yeah, I think I, I think honestly, pastors at any stage, because Leia, even just Leia's prose is constructed in such a way that you're going to come back to it and see something that you haven't seen before. In order to do this season, this will be my third time through Leia's book in the time since it's been published. I just find it, I've read it, I read it once by myself and then once with another person and now for this season. So it's just a tremendously valuable book really for anybody. If you're a layman, you're also going to gain a lot of insight into what it is like to be a pastor, which I think can sometimes be rather mysterious, even to pastors themselves, let alone people who aren't. So I think that's valuable for anybody. Yeah, I mean, I'll admit that this is the first time I'm going through this book, and I find it to be the kind of book that I wish I had read five years earlier. It's it's a tremendously insightful kind of book, and Leia has a way of putting things into words that makes his point quite clear. Even if some of it is a little time-bound, and we'll talk about a little bit of that, like his own circumstances with vicarages and stuff like that, he still has insights that I think are, are worth bringing into the, the modern context. Especially on the notion of what Christian experience is for. So when he talks about the familiar distinction about prayer, meditation on scripture, and suffering that we've seen in both Gerberding and Walther already, when he talks about that, he kind of complains and asks rhetorically, does anybody actually seriously care about prayer and suffering the way they care about reading? He's got he's got a lot of very incisive comments, especially about how ex- how important experience and prayer are in shaping you as the kind of man God needs. Good stuff. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly Spoken after this. Every word of God is pure. He is a shield unto them that put their trust in Him. The mission of Word Fitly Spoken is to put the Word of God at the center of all of life. To find out more, check us out at wordfitlyspoken.org. We are back. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills here with Zelwyn Heidi and Adam Kuntz to talk about Wilhelm Leia's The Pastor. So, after our brief introduction to the life of Leia and a brief outline of just exactly what the book is, let's dive a little bit deeper into it. Adam, I believe there was a very important outline you wanted to take a look at here first. Yeah, it's Leia's outline. After talking about preparation for studying in the ministry, 
he kind of assumes a course of theological study that would be standard at a German university in his time. And then he talks about examination. This would be undertaken by a combination of consistories, which would be territorial organizations, provincial level organizations, mainly of pastors, but also some very active laity, and also by theological faculties. And they would be looking for certain things in a man, fitness to preach sermons, fitness to catechize. Leah is going to outline the entirety of one's fitness for the pastoral office. Before I do that, let me just put this aside in. Leah looks at being a pastor more like we look at someone seriously qualifying to be a starting quarterback in the NFL. It's nobody's right. You are there because you have been given certain gifts that you are now using in a particularly helpful way for the sake of a larger endeavor. So the word fitness is really helpful here, sometimes because we look at church offices, including the pastoral ministry, as one's right. It is not that. If it were, there would be no test for fitness. So this is Leah's version of the combine for NFL prospects. These are the conditions that you have to meet. And they are, and they, they kind of rhyme in Latin, but we'll spare you the Latin for right now. Purity of confession, ability to teach, and moral purity. It's a little helpful to know that the, the word for purity in Latin with confession is the father of our word, sincerity, singleness of heart in your confession of faith. Leia is going to rank those in measure of importance, but he is very clear that in his own time, the ability to teach, basically being smart, being academically good, is, he thinks, overemphasized and does not equip a man so completely for the pastoral office as the training that Leah himself received seemed to indicate. He thinks most men come into the office very well prepared to give university-level theological lectures they do not come into the office very well prepared to be parish pastors. Do you guys think that that is a, a just claim? I mean, is that is that a danger we still have today? Or is it just of his time? To put it in its historical context, it's definitely a just claim for his own situation because mm -hmm. he's coming out of a post-Reformation period where Theology really takes on an, an extremely academic character, especially because uh, Lutheranism is constantly under threat from being overrun during the Counter-Reformation and all those sorts of things. Yeah, right. And so, and so they, they have a, a strong desire to get it absolutely clear so that they'd be able to then confess it over and against these other positions. And so, yeah, so there is a real strong emphasis, some would say stemming from Melanchthon, on oh. academics. Oh, no. Are we? We're not peddling that conspiracy theory on this podcast, are we? <laughs> he, oh, well, we can get into that debate later. I'm fine to debate who killed JFK, but I, I do not, I do not <laughs> want to slander the preceptor of Germany as the cause of all the evils in the Lutheran church. But It's not slander. <laughs> it's just recognizing that he did bring Aristotelianism back in. <laughs> <laughs> can't be slander if it's true <laughs> but anyway and so by the time you get down to leia's day yeah. you do have a strong emphasis on the academic level and right. kind of com right. combined with what you were mentioning earlier as well so it's definitely something true of his day well hold up 
that, but Adam's question was, do you think that that's a valid critique even down to today? Well, and that's and that's where we have to, I think, debate a little bit because we don't demand the same level of academic rigor that Leia's students or you know students in Leia's day would have have been required. Well, we have logos and iPads. We don't need it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, to your to your point, Zelwyn. I mean, we don't we do not require men graduating either of our seminaries in the Missouri Synod to have taken a certain amount of years of not only Hebrew and Greek, but also Latin and German, the so-called theological languages, nobody requires that anymore. Whereas we ourselves used to require it, right? So we're not even, we're not necessarily speaking abstractly about someone else's tradition only as far as how things have changed. I mean, Leo was was himself training his mission workers really mainly to preach and teach in German and he gave them some rudimentary instruction in English if they were coming to America or going to Australia. But he himself understood that academic qualifications are not the be-all and end-all. But I had a, I had a roommate prior to getting married, and then, and then after that, I went to seminary. And my roommate started at Westminster, Philadelphia, which, and he himself was an Orthodox Presbyterian. And they mm-hmm. had some of the same self-deprecating comments about how they were too academic. Their sermons were, you know, disquisitions on the aseity of the Godhead, stuff like that. They, 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 would, they would make those sorts of jokes about themselves that I think sometimes Lutherans make about themselves. And certainly Leia sees as a danger in the Lutheran church, that we're, we're overly intellectual, overly academic, I, I mean, with the OPC, that it, that they are extreme. <laughs> they have very high academic standards. There's, there's no question. Right. Their, yeah. Their examinations are certainly thorough. We'll put yeah. it that way. Right. At, th- at, t- at two or three different levels. Well, but at the same time, we have to ask the question: even if we've come to a more practical level, and even if it is a matter of just self-perception, sure, are we still demanding, or are we still trying to set ourselves up for? an idea of academic achievement that that Leia would say is maybe fraught with danger? Because, I mean, we do require a master's degree sure. of Missouri Synod pastors. For the most part, yeah. For the most part. So, I mean, what, is that, what does that mean for our own context then? I, I, don't, I don't think that it's necessarily a question of saying like, well, for the sake of Christ's mission, you're not allowed to read any book that's over 200 pages, you know? <laughs> Or you're not allowed to learn any dead languages because that would hinder Christ's mission. I think, I think that rather than looking at learning, let's just set aside academia as a... I mean, academia is its own culture. It has its own rules, its own snobbishness, its own kind of everything. Setting aside academic culture, just talking about learning. I think the difference is, does the theological student know how his learning involves the application of God's word, which is able to perfect him for every good work? Or is he studying God's word as a sort of idle object of curiosity, the same way I might study the Napoleonic Wars, right? Or is he studying it in either respect and even imbibing it to any degree? Right, <laughs> right, <laughs> right, right. Um, yeah, like I don't, I don't need to wage warfare with, you know, like muskets or hussars anytime soon, right? So that's that's kind of an that's just idle curiosity. <laughs> if I'm studying God's word or anything that might be pertinent to it theologically, 
then I'm studying something that ultimately is going to be applied by Christ's ministers to his people. And if I don't keep that in mind, then I'm, I'm kind of missing, I'm missing the point. Leos has a wonderful quote on page 12, right to your point, Adam. He says, this is what the church needs, and it is not just one school of thought. All students ought to strive for it. Tell me why you are here should be written over the study door of every young student, and none should forget that he is striving for profession, which is to save himself and all his hearers. Right. right. And I think if, if we yeah. keep that in mind, that, that simple phrase, and to ask ourselves, you know, what it is that we are doing here, that will avoid the twin dangers of overemphasizing academia, which I think still exists, even if the demands are, are much lower, but also the, the other danger, which you said, is to denigrate learning entirely and saying, how does this help the mission of the church? Well, of course, it's going to help. Yeah. A, a pastor should be well-educated. He should be able to speak to you know, every situation. It's just a matter of where are your priorities? Yeah, I have, a, I have a colleague here in PA who has said that the case for extensive theological education prior to ordination has actually never been better simply because of the complexity, even just theologically, let alone morally or, or in any other way, of the environment in which we operate. You cannot simply go to a church and rely on certain patterns of life repeating themselves throughout the generations. Then that brings up the, the question, though, of how do we actually teach that? You can't rely on the same even pattern of words, not to be confused with the sound pattern of words. You can't rely you know, on the basic fundamental Christian principles being understood even by a congregation, depending upon where you go. Right. So then how ought education look? And we need to ask ourselves if we're teaching the right way how to simply effectively communicate. And at a certain point, we have to talk about basic communication skills even. You know, can you get a girl's phone number? Can you get Susie to dance with you? That's, that, that actually is becoming a practical pastoral question. Insofar as, can you make eye contact with a stranger and have them engage you in conversation? That's all I mean by that. And I think it's fair and it's valid. It's an interesting phenomenon, this frustration almost, and that yields to some kind of anger at people outside the church, even within the church, when they don't understand even basic principles of Christianity. They don't understand because fathers and mothers have been derelict in duty as far as passing the faith down. And pastors have often been guilty of this, either through neglect or through worldly passions, whereby they want to present a message that isn't Christian, or through some sort of theological backwardness where they do have correct doctrine and they do have correct liturgical postures, but postures, but oftentimes they don't have the skills necessary to accurately relay the information to the people. And so for any number of reasons, the increasing secularization of the culture, and at times the pool of men who are attracted to the office, we have this, this behemoth that is the mass of the Christian population that doesn't understand even the basics. And so how do we train a man both to be this gentleman of academic rigor, and at the same time, basically a tinker or a cobbler who must go in and do the most menial and lowly tasks of the gospel ministry. 
Well, I know we're going to get into this a little bit more. We discuss the rest of this chapter in probably in the third section of this of this podcast. But Leia's situation is not actually all that different. I mean, yeah, of course, right. you are talking about a, a period of probably generally higher biblical literacy. I, I'll give you that one. But at the same time... Or at least an enculturation. Yeah. A Christian enculturation. We'll say that. Right. But at the same time, he is still dealing with a people who... I mean, it's, it's, it's a perennial problem, like you said, Adam, with Christ's system all the way down. So, fourth century forward and every time. How do you relate the educated clergy to a people who are generally much simpler in their ways. Academia has a completely different way of talking. Chrysostom is a really good example because Chrysostom is massively well-educated. Right. Of a man who, because of his education, and I guess the, the image that I'd like to use here is channel. He can take those rich sources that he has, but he's able to channel them into a very plain-spoken eloquent Greek, which allows him at first to have tremendous success. And then when he is too near the center of imperial power in Constantinople, because he is so good at making himself understood and being plain about the teachings of scripture, it gets him into great trouble. But I mean, his, his, his difficulty is the same thing as his success. It's because he's so good at channeling the complexity of Christian teaching into clear speech for the sake of God's people. Yeah, we used to call that being apt to teach. Being apt to teach is how the Bible puts that. And Leia's going to talk about that quite a bit. That's always the trick. And is that something that can be taught? I suppose to a small degree it can. You know, there are certain things you can educate a man to do, but this is part of also what he where he gets at with fitness. Well, it's like Gerberding said, we shouldn't be sending our our weekly farm boys to the... Yeah, don't send the runt to the litter. <laughs> don't send the runt to do... And then I suppose, you know, that brings up this provocative question, but is ordination necessarily a mark of fitness for the office? For Leia, ordination comes comes after all of this. So if this is not there, then ordination shouldn't even be... Well, that's why I place. asked the question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that one of the difficulties in reading Leia is that when he is kind of ranting about how apt to teach is exaggerated in its importance. He is not talking about the capacity to communicate the teachings of scripture. He's talking about the capacity to inhabit university culture. Yeah. To, to wow a certain audience that is not the parish, right? right or to even right. wow the parish, but, but to sort of fit into this academic mold and to be something other than one who can clearly communicate what needs to be communicated to the flock that the man is called to. Right. I'll say it again. I mean, academia really has its own as, as a, as a cultural project has a different goal than the church. Your soul is not saved by being in a working group at society of biblical literature. Your goal is to ascertain whatever or apply whatever theory to set of texts. Whereas the pastor's goal is to save the souls of himself and his hearers. So that's a different goal. So there's a different, focus in speaking God's word, in talking about God's word that has to be there for the pastor than for a man who's theologically trained, but operating within broader academia. The other two characteristics, which we'll keep going into the next segment with after the break, are sincerity of confession and moral purity. Those might sound old-fashioned. I want to say at the outset before we go into the break, 
that when Leia lays out scriptures, requirements for bishops, for pastors in Christ church, which you can find in First Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1 specifically, are, there are lists there. When those are laid out, Leia sees those as actual lists of job qualifications. He doesn't think that they are unattainable by a man. He doesn't see them as in jest or meant to show everyone how unfit he actually is. He sees them as fitness tests, and there are men who can pass them and men who cannot. So as we go into the next section and we talk about that, it's it's important to know that Leia believes moral purity is something that can actually exist in a Christian's life and needs especially to be present in the life of a pastor. Uh-oh, well, you've just triggered a ton of blogs. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly Spoken. As for God, His way is perfect. The word of the Lord is tried. He is a shield to all them that trust in Him. The book that sits on your shelf, The One Gathering Dust, Word Fitly Spoken, asks you to once again take up and read. Hear the words of the only wise God and be saved. We'll be right back. This is A Word Fitly Spoken. We're here talking about Wilhelm Leia's The Pastor. Before the break, we said we were going to begin a discussion on this very important topic, especially for prospective pastors, and that is sincerity of confession. And Leia devotes quite a large amount of ink to it. So gentlemen, whoever wants to take the question, what is sincerity of confession? What what do we mean? Uh, what what type of confession? Confession of what? That sort of thing. Well, I think Adam kind of explained it when he first brought it up. I thought he did a nice job of pointing out that sincerity in Latin has to do with singleness of heart and not being a double-minded man, unstable in all your ways. It really comes down to confessing the truth of the Bible and not being duplicitous or not trying to say one thing and do another, but to say, this is what I believe and to basically proclaim that to the world. Yeah, he means that the candidate is a sincere evangelical Lutheran, that he holds to the Book of Concord as an exposition of scripture, and that he intends to exercise his ministry in accordance with those confessions. There's a really good quote that Leah has, wholehearted faithfulness to the confession especially has been looked on with suspicion even considered as a disastrous narrowness. So so single-heartedness can often look like fanaticism to people. But what he means is that the candidate sincerely believes what scriptures teach. If Word Fitly Spoken does have a motto, it is fanaticism is love. And (laughs) that being said, I do have this question, and it kind of goes back to the Tennessee Senate discussions and the Walther discussions. When we talk about the body of confessions insofar as confessional documents for Leia, is that referring to the entire Book of Concord 
for his church body. Yes, it is. Yeah, I mean, we have to ask that because there is a there is variance between Lutheran groups. Right. Yeah. Historically, for most German Lutherans, it refers to the entire Book of Concord. Americans, Scandinavians are going to be different, but for most Germans, at least on the books, it refers to the entire Book of Concord. What he's referring to is that inside his church, there has been a massive gap historically between what was actually taught and done and what was supposed to have been taught and done. <laughs> Imagine that. Yeah. Thus, thus, the candidate who actually wants to teach and do what it says in the Confessions is looked upon as narrow. So that's why he's saying that this this particular test is often neglected. Well, this would also be the time period of the enforced union, would it not? Not where Leia lives. Leia and Walther aren't actually citizens of the same country. Right. Yeah. To call them just Germans is a bit disingenuous because it it conveys this idea that there is a unified Germany. It's like a unified Italy. We don't get either of those until well into the 19th century. I mean, how, how many years are we looking at for from Leia? Because they're in the early 1800s or almost to the mid before we actually have the unified Germany that we know. Yeah. And even then it gets broken up. Leia dies two years after William is, is crowned as emperor of the Germans. So he he lives in a quote unified germany which is which is heavily federalized for only 2 years of his life and and walther lives right. in a completely different place and then the union the enforced union is in prussia which is a different kingdom altogether so yeah sure. exactly leia's struggle against unionism is actually with roman catholics he cuts his teeth on a controversy called the the genuflection controversy where Franconian, so that's a that's a that's an area, but it's not its own separate province. The Franconians, more vastly predominantly Lutheran, that's where Leah is born and where he ministers. But they are within the kingdom of Bavaria, which is overwhelmingly and ferociously Roman Catholic. Lutheran soldiers were being required to kneel. This was a new thing. They were being required to kneel when the military chaplains would come past with the Roman Catholic host in a monstrance, especially for a Corpus Christi procession. Leia successfully defended the prerogative of Lutheran soldiers merely to remove their caps out of respect, but not to be forced to kneel when the host was, uh, I feel strange calling it that because it's, it's not outside the use given by Christ, but when the monstrance was coming past. Leia's unionism, his battle with unionism is a little different from the northern Germans because he lives in a predominantly Roman Catholic kingdom. But you are still dealing with, like you say, the spirit of unionism, even if it's not the enforced That's right. Prussian Yeah, yeah. Union. and state, state control over confession. So he deals with some of the same issues that pretty much any German in the 19th century will be dealing with. Yeah. The other characteristic besides purity of confession and capacity to teach is moral purity. And Leia outlines those in just kind of expositing and also quoting the Bible, seeing those things once again, as I said in the last segment, as self-evident and self-evidently important. He connects moral purity, especially to students and then a pastor's readiness in prayer. I want to talk about that connection for a little bit here. The one who is praying is one who understands not only his own heart better than someone who is not taking the time to reflect, to pray, to confess, but the one who is praying is also somebody 
who I think is much more readily aware of his own need for wisdom, right? So I think that one of the points here is that one of the roles that prayer has in our our holiness, which is God fitting us for the works that he's prepared for us, is that prayer makes us aware of what we lack in the same way that Solomon, when he took office, prayed for wisdom and called himself a little child. So Leah is very insistent on the connection between prayer and moral purity, not that moral purity is somehow an achievement, but it is one of the gifts that God gives in order to fit a man for his office. Well, let's talk about this a little bit. Leah in prayer, is he only referring to, say, the liturgy of the hours, you know, and sort of the breaking of bread and the, and the prayers aspect of it? Or is he talking about something other than that, yeah. like the pastor's prayer closet? Yeah. Or do we even know? Yeah, we, we do, because he's pretty voluminous in his writings on the liturgy, most of which, unfortunately, haven't, haven't yet been translated into English. So he's, he's talking about the divine service. He also laments the fact that there is no Lutheran breviary similar to the Liturgy of the Hours prayed, required to be prayed by Roman Catholic priests. But he is also talking about what we might call free or extemporaneous prayer as well, where in the process of reading scripture or examining one's own heart, you are moved to confession, repentance, thanksgiving, praise, whatever whatever may happen. So we're looking at all three. We then. are. The Mass, yeah. the Divine Service, the Liturgy of the Hours, and then the actual private time of prayer. Yeah, it's a, it's a whole So that's thing. a significant amount of time devoted to prayer. Right. Taking this to more practical bent then, do we see prayer as our calling and as our work of the ministry, or do we see it as something occasional, incidental, yeah, right, even. Right, right. We pray at the hospital bed when we have to. We do the preparatory prayers in the Mass because the point of the divine service is only the Lord's Supper or something like that, right? We we can enter into those kinds of attitudes where it's just a means to an end instead of being the means at the end itself. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I uh, for me, the extreme formalism of this is captured in Bertolt von Schenk and his memoirs talking about how he would go oh, no. he would go out and <laughs> he would go out and smoke throughout most of the divine service except for when he had to give the sermon and conduct the communion service but otherwise he was you know in these older churches the outside exit door can be kind of right right outside the chancel and he would step out there and be smoking and kind of taking the air and then come back in for the sermon <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's kind of an extreme version of this problem i want to read a leia quote because leia is i think really good on this he says unfortunately is precisely the inculcation of prayer and struggle that remains almost completely overlooked and neglected at the universities because of this, most university graduates are inexperienced and inept in prayer and temptation and impractical and timid in the work of the Holy Office. One can only marvel that they attempt it anyway. This is, I mean, Leia is just kind of a, he's quite a guy. Being neophytes themselves, they often experiment with other souls who have been bought at a price and can easily be ruined since they do not know their worth or lack of worth from their own experience. Yes, there are, there are many souls who trust young pastors and are led astray, or at least are no longer rescued from trouble and despair because those who are now shepherds of their souls wasted their time of preparation between book and mug. 
So that's, um, <laughs> that'll preach. <laughs> yeah. I mean, where's the lie though? Yeah. Where's the lie? <laughs> so yeah, Leia believes that prayer is, is it's not an incidental. It's, it's actually absolutely essential. You could forego one more book. And I say that as somebody who owns probably too many, you could forego, what am I saying? Probably you could forego one more book. You cannot forego prayer. Um, you just you just can't. Well, and and how easy it is to let everything get in the way of prayer. Oh yeah, totally. Yep. Yeah, and, and then it, it gives way to either no prayer at all, or kind of a merely ritualistic, formulaic version of prayer. And that's and that's not a dig at all at prayer books and liturgy. That obviously that's not what we stand for. But just this kind of rote going through the motions version of it without any consciousness of what we're saying and who we're speaking to. Leia also has at least one work translated into English published as, what is it, Seed Grains of Prayer? Seed Grains of Prayer, yeah, yeah from uh, Manual Press, right? Which I find to be an actual quite helpful volume. I would recommend that to our hearers as well if they find themselves struggling with you know, just what to pray for, maybe how to pray. So Leia is deeply concerned with prayer. He really is. Well, it's an interesting thing, prayer. Here, by virtue of the merits of Christ, we may approach the throne room of God and petition him as dear sons. And when we aren't thinking of it in that way, then we lose sight of just who we're talking to. And it's easy enough to point fingers at, the, at anybody who would just read the words of a written prayer absentmindedly. Written prayers are good, and they do serve to discipline and teach us. At the same time, I'm reminded of an example of a pastor I knew in college, or a man who who at least got the ministerial tax deduction. He always told this story, and he bragged about it, and I remember it just not sitting right with me. At night, I like to just sort of lay after I've got done watching The Tonight Show or watching the ball game and just and just pray to God until I fall asleep. And I thought, you know, that sounds really pious, and that sounds really good. And at the same time, how rude would that be to just fall asleep in front of someone you're talking to? Now, it's one thing for an adorable child, indeed, we're all children of God, to just fall asleep in, our, in you know, their father's arms or whatever. But this was just more this kind of careless and, and cutesy way of approaching this. But you are talking to the sovereign God of the universe when you pray. And I remember just this, this glib attitude. Now, we approach him as our father, of course. But at the same time, he is God. He is our thrice holy God. We say, as the scriptures say, or as the hymns say, if you will, holy, holy, holy. And he wants us to bring our petitions and our praise to him. And so we ought to be ever mindful of both the great privilege of bringing our voice to God. And at the same time, this terrible reality of who we are praying to. We can't forget, though, that as much as as important as it is for every Christian to pray, and we are commanded to pray and to bring all of our petitions to him in prayer, but it is especially the duty of the pastoral office to intercede on behalf of the people that God has given to us. Absolutely. You took away my punchline. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, I was getting there. I was I was taking my long... You're, you're a long way around it. I know. Yeah. I know. 
but no, you're absolutely right. That is part of the pastoral calling. It's not only it's not only saying the verba and preaching the sermon, but it is actually petitioning and bringing forth the names of the congregation before the God that has put you in that office. Well, do we not have a perfect example in Jesus Christ in the high priestly prayer of John 17, praying well, for those go. whom he has given and also for those who would come after? Yeah. <laughs> this is, I mean, our, our Lord <laughs> Specifically, does it. I pray not for these, I pray for these ones, you know. Right. Not to put a to put too much to put a bow on it or anything. But yeah, you know that that's an interesting thing. Everybody would absolutely be on board with following our Lord Jesus Christ's example in the Lord's prayer, but they oftentimes we forget the, you know, the other examples, right? Right. Now, let me ask you this, you know, because we can unpack this book as an historical oddity, and that's fine, or even as an historical gem, I don't mean oddity in a bad way. But it doesn't very much inform our practice today. What can pastors do to make praying for their congregation a regular part of their ministry and their holy ordering of the time? I just use a list. And when there you go, <laughs> I mark it up with specific petitions. And then when the page gets too marked up, I just print off, I just print off a new roster. I mean, I know that sounds basic, but it gets it done no, it's, and, it, it's, and it covers. It's a list. Germans love putting people on lists. It's good. <laughs> And just something as simple as that, print, printing off the roster, getting the actual names there. And right, yeah, and I I keep that in whatever I'm using to pray, which is usually I just use a psalter and go through that at some kind of clip. So I will include petitions for people. We also put we put a certain number of families just in alphabetical order with each day of the week until we go through the whole roster. Also in our bulletin each week, so that the people are doing to some degree the same thing that I'm doing which is helpful to everyone. That's how I do it because I, I, I think that this is something that we've talked about before. But if we're going to talk about fitness for the pastoral office, it's also helpful to think of the pastoral office, not just as kind of a way of being or a fun thing to do. It's a set of tasks. And so it's helpful just to carry out those tasks in a workaday fashion, both when you're really fired up about the tasks and on the days when you're not that you're still doing your job the way that you have been given to do it. Uh, Zelwan, anything to add to that? No, I, I think that's all good points to make. I guess I would only add to it to kind of emphasize the, the workday thing that Adam is, is saying is just pencil it in because honestly, we get so wrapped up in all of the busyness of what we think the ministry is about. Or maybe it is some of the things that, you know, it is actually about like visitation or reading or studying or something like that. That we just tend to let prayer get pushed off to the side. Yeah, exactly. It, it becomes almost like a "oops, I forgot to pray today" kind of thing. And I mean, we're we're all guilty of this. I mean, it's not like we're trying to point fingers or anything. Yeah, but we ought to have prayer just as much a part of our daily routine as brushing your teeth. I hope. Right. I hope you're all doing that. Um, but just make it, you know, just that everyday part, just as simple as basic things like showering, brushing your teeth, combing your hair. Let prayer become that much of an ingrained discipline. And also an ingrained discipline to the point where we're actually taking, I would say, even a significant amount of time to do it. Because the other temptation we have with it is, you know, maybe we pencil it in, but we pencil in like five minutes before lunch or something like that. And sure. I'm yeah. not saying that that's in inefficacious or something or it's bad. I'm just saying, where are our priorities? To, to quote Leia again, tell me why you are here. 
Good stuff. Well, with that, Jim, we're going to end this episode. This has been a Word Fitly Spoken. If you like what you heard and want to know more, check us out at wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or Twitter at wordfitly. Thanks for listening, everyone. I'm Willie Grills, here with Zelwyn Heidi and Adam Kuntz. God love you, and God bless. But there is a true, deep, all-inclusive learning, just think of Thomas Aquinas, Luther, John Gerhard, etc., that never becomes an end in itself, never boasts, and for that reason works in a more powerful and salutary way. At the same time, this learning is more effective and salutary. There is a scholarship that powerfully prepares for life and does not falter in Franca's direction. In temptation, it can carry the torch and give the praying spirit cleansing and confidence. This is what the church needs, and it is not just one school of thought. All students ought to strive for it. Tell me why you are here should be written over the study door of every young student, and none should forget that he is striving for a profession, which is to save himself and all his listeners. In the final analysis, the Holy Office should accomplish nothing except to enlighten the way to eternal life in this valley of deadly life and living death, and to lead the soul with a strong hand on that way to life. What else should this time of preparation be, if not to enable this in every possible way?